The presence of cognitive impairment can contribute to risky financial decisions, erratic bill payments, and higher susceptibility of financial fraud, something we discussed on an earlier episode. After all, the definition of dementia requires progressive functional decline. And in our world today, managing household finances is perhaps one of the most complex functional tasks of adulting. But we usually think of these financial troubles occurring after the disease has taken hold. Very little is known about financial issues upstream of cognitive decline in the years before identification of dementia. But just the way that mild cognitive impairment may precede dementia, it's plausible that earlier hints of functional impairment may occur before a diagnosis. In fact, they may even occur before a cognitive issue is even detectable. Not necessarily a financial catastrophe, but more subtle, small issues, such as missing a payment, or perhaps a few credit card payments that impact a credit rating. In this episode, we'll speak with an economist whose research investigated how missing a single credit card payment may be a very early indicator of a cognitive issue. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Mining Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. We're joined today by Dr. Lauren Nicholas. Dr. Nicholas is an associate professor in the Department of Health Systems, Management and Policy at the University of Colorado School of Public Health. She's a health economist whose research focuses on the role of public policy in improving health and healthcare quality for older Americans. She's published on a variety of topics, including dementia, surgery, and end-of-life care. Dr. Nicholas is here today to speak with us about her recent study that examined financial issues associated with the onset of dementia. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Dr. Nicholas was the first author of the study titled The Financial Presentation of Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias that was published in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine. Like many other studies of dementia, they used Medicare claims data. But here's the interesting part. The study linked Medicare data to consumer credit reports to identify financial issues. So to start things off, Lauren, what got you interested in looking at financial issues and dementia? Well, I had attended some conference presentations that were sort of talking about the challenge of dealing with money management and cognitively impaired older adults, especially those who didn't... Um, want to allow other people to take over their finances and sort of the difficulties that this presents for both patients and their families. And I think some, something about being in that room talking about the financial problems and sort of the timeline over which they could occur made me wonder whether, you know, these would be detectable in financial data if they were as prevalent as it was sort of sounding like from all of these anecdotal stories. And as, as we looked into this further, there were, um, you know, a number of news articles talking about kind of one-off situations where a family would 
discover someone's cognitive impairment because of one of these more catastrophic financial events where like, you know, you're, you're seeing the notice of eviction for non-payment or losing a family business or, you know, putting, putting a new fraudster on your bank accounts and losing a lot of money. And so I think the, it was sort of this potential for really catastrophic financial problems that made us wonder, you know, how early does this start? Can we catch it? Are there, you know, we don't have great ways of dealing with a lot of the clinical presentation, but we might be able to help out on the financial dimensions of dementia. And then it turned into, you know, how do we get the data and actually make this project happen, which maybe, maybe wasn't the fastest process to think was going to be a good idea, but um, I think our our findings sort of speak to making it all, making the investment worthwhile. So it sounds like we knew something about financial issues, like like sort of after dementia has taken hold and, and, and even in, in, you know, people write about this in like the media and stuff and and personal stories and those types of things. So was the idea that you had sort of to look before dementia was identified more like just out of curiosity, how far you can go back or more kind of, I mean, what was sort of, sort of the motivation to look specifically before it? Yeah, I think it was you know, partly, you know, the models that we often use in economics look at um, what happens like before and after a certain event. And so the diagnosis in some ways represents like a natural point to look at, you know, are things different at the point of diagnosis or after diagnosis. And, you know, we, we were kind of combining the way that we frequently approach these problems with, you know, some of the stories that would say, oh, people come in for a diagnosis because of one of these financial problems um, and kind of wondering how prevalent that is, you know, is that a normal pathway or is that just like these really scary, almost urban legend stories that, you know, are actually relatively rare, but get a a lot of attention um, because it's so horrifying that, you know, this could happen to you and your family. And so I think we, we kind of wanted to trace out what this progression looks like because we didn't have, you know, great numbers in how early does it start? Is it, you know, is it even common enough that we would see it in this type of data. So it was it was partly, you know, very informed by all of these anecdotes, but also sort of a fishing expedition because we didn't have good data on, you know, how early does it start and how bad is it? So let's uh, actually talk a little bit about the data. So one of the fun things about this podcast is, so Matt and I both like data. We get to talk to lots of authors who've used all kinds of cool different kinds of data. I think you're the first person who's used financial credit report data, um, which I've never worked with. I don't, I don't know if Matt, if you've ever worked with it. So like, how um, have you used these data before? Kind of how did you know they existed? What was the process like even to, to be able to get the, the credit report data to use? Yeah, so these re- data have been um, growing in use and popularity in economics over time. And Joanne Shu, who is a co-author and sort of co-leader of this project, 
who has also had longstanding interests in um, the financial implications of dementia, was at the time when we started working on this project at the Federal Reserve Board in D.C., which um, had already put together a massive credit report data set that was a great starting point for this project. And she had a lot of expertise in using the data. So we, and we had um, very good support from the Fed about, you know, creating their first data use agreement um, to have Medicare claims data housed on site. Um, and so I, th- I think it's a pain that's more familiar to the um, health researchers in your audience. So can I ask, like, from <laughs> from start to finish, how long did it take you to get this credit data to, to be able to use? Uh, I, th- I think we were we were in the first no cost extension year of our our twenty one grant that was funding this when we first um, combined data sets. So um, thanks to years of investment from the Fed before our project started, um, those the credit data were already, you know, in a, a very research accessible format, but getting the permission to kind of combine these data sets and get them both into place was um, a multi-year effort. So so essentially the funded project should have been done before you got your hands on the data. <laughs> that, would have, that, that was what we hoped for when we wrote the grant. Yes. Um, you know, it, we were combining a lot of sensitive data resources. And so I, I appreciate the um, lawyers and everyone who made sure that we were keeping everyone kind of optimally protected, because I think that is definitely a concern that comes up with a project like this, where it's like, wow, you know a lot about these people. Um, we don't want just anybody running mm-hmm. off with that information. Um, it's it's a little scary to find out how informative your credit information can be about your health and, you know, other non-financial variables. It's it's a it's a good thing that, that we have these levels of protection. But I think that listeners that may not have experience with working with, you know, national data, um, sensitive data, not only healthcare data, but in this case, financial and healthcare data is like a double whammy. You know, the process is incredible. I mean, for listeners out there, like, you know, you have this data user agreement thing, which is like kind of your agreement to use it, it which takes months and like, like we just said, sort of years. So it can be, can be quite a process. You see the publication, you're like, oh, sweet. They just grabbed some data and ran with it. But it's like a negotiation, you know, agreement contractual thing, which is probably good to keep everything safe and tidy, but um, can be quite a process. So um, I guess speaking a little bit more about these two different data sets, like this is something that we talk a lot about in, in my lab. and people that I work with, like, you know, how can we connect two different data sets that, you know, may not have been connected in the past? So, you know, to find people across two different data sets, ideally, you would have some way to identify them, you know, mm-hmm. to, to people out there, you know, I'd imagine just a name or identification number or something. Was that at all an issue with connecting these two data sets? And, and if so, like, how did you handle it? Yeah. So in our case, we didn't have a common set of exact identifiers and we had to rely on what we could ascertain about 
household size using um, household size as determined by the number of people receiving mail at the same address. Um, and then small areas of geography and year of birth. So um, we we have people we think we've we've matched, but there's there's definitely error in in that, right? And that was that's a factor that's actually going to act against us finding any results. So in our current work, we're working on kind of requesting data for randomly generated lists of social security numbers so that we will have the same people in oh, wow. both data sets. And that will allow us to, to construct a much larger data set, more granular. Um, so with in, in our study, while our, our sample size was quite large for the types of information that we were putting together, we, we were still losing probably 90% of the data that we had access to because, you know, people live in apartment buildings and appear to live with hundreds of other people or, um, you know, we had a 5% sample of credit report data. So, you know, not everybody was going to be in there anyway, or we'd, we'd have error on one side or the other. And so the same person wouldn't match in both data sets. So there, you know, we'd, we'd sort of set these programs running and leave to go to lunch and be like, we're going to come back and find out that, you know, maybe we've been working for two years and we're going to have no actual analytic data set and maybe it's going to be amazing. Um, and so luck luckily it, it did work out when we were doing our matching, but I think there, there were a lot of things that, you know, we were basically sort of flying blind designing our initial matching strategy and it luckily worked out, um, and gave us sort of good pilot data to do a more comprehensive version of that. The financial data, did, th did that include people just with financial issues or people that may have had or not had a financial issue? Uh, we had everyone. Everyone. And, the, you know, the, the credit bureaus collect many different dimensions of financial data. And so we sort of ultimately focused on some of the more common problems like missing a bill payment what's um, kind of the good news is that older adults on average have like pretty good financial outcomes. Um, so that was sort of disappointing as a researcher when you're like, we need interesting adverse outcomes to look at. And, you know, one of oh, the it's, best it's things coming. you can do for your credit score is to have your accounts open for a long time. And, um, so if, if you open an account when you were 25 and now you're 80, you're, you're like looking amazing in the, the data. Also older adults often like own their homes outright because they've paid off their mortgage. So we, we don't see you failing to pay your mortgage and getting foreclosed on, which again is great if you're, if you're worried about the financial well-being of older adults, but sort of 
reduced some of our opportunities for investigation on the research side. Well, well they're coming, right? The the <laughs> the, the, the financially issue ridden uh, demographic sway will be there soon, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on the topic of financial issues, um, you know, when you have access to this wealth of information in a credit report, um, how did you pick which specific outcomes you wanted to look at out of, you know, all the information that might have been available in there? Well, we, we'd started with a list of outcomes that were kind of coming up in some of these anecdotal reports where we thought, oh, you know, you, you hear about people losing businesses or having their homes foreclosed on. And so we, we were thinking that that might be where some of the mileage was going to be. And then we, we are also kind of combining that with like what's frequently studied in these credit report studies. And, you know, we'd, we'd present the work in progress and people would have other suggestions. And so I think our, our list kind of evolved as we learned more about sort of where you do and don't see movement in credit reports of older adults more generally and sort of what we would specifically expect dementia to be impacting and kind of what's what's sufficiently common that we could find it in a large data set study like this. That is a, a practical consideration in terms of like having it be common enough for the, to find something. So um, in, in terms of the time frame, um, was there anything specific like of why you selected? I think it was six years, looking sort of six years back and six and four years, I believe, after a diagnosis. Was there any reason that you picked that time frame? Well, the four years after was directly kind of driven by our data and I think more than half of the sample was dead within four years of a diagnosis. And so things just get, you know, really noisy after that time period. And it sort of made made sense that, you know, if our coefficients were going to reflect this very selected group that's either getting diagnosed much earlier on average than most folks with dementia or, you know, somehow being able to live for a long time with the disease, um, we didn't know how comparable those results after four years would be with um, the results closer to diagnosis where we had a lot more sample to draw on. And I think that the six years backwards was kind of driven by just the, the span of data that we had, although some folks have encouraged us to look even further back um, oh, wow. since I guess we're, we're still sort of scratching the surface on how long dementia might um, impact your financial well-being. And, you know, often in these studies, you would want the same number of periods before and after your key event. And in, in some ways, we, we were sort of starting with the diagnosis because that's the only time that you have a time period that's clearly defined. But I think we, we also want to understand like how far back these go, right? So, so seeing, seeing things, I guess seeing, seeing anything was kind of surprising to us that, you know, wow, this really is affecting so many people that you can see it in a data set with all of the problems that we've just talked about. 
so I think when, when we have our, our much larger linkage, we'll be able to kind of more robustly estimate sort of especially further back in time. So it's like as as you start to learn things, we just get more and more questions about that we want to sort of look at next. So we've we've uh, we've asked you a lot of questions about the paper, but we haven't actually like had you um, tell the listeners the your your findings from the paper. So could <laughs> yeah. you uh, do, do you want to drum roll um, share the take home messages? Oh, sure. <laughs> so I guess in in our paper, which was focusing on single person households, where we're going to have the strongest connection to your um, financial capabilities being impacted by an ultimate dementia diagnosis, we found on average symptoms in terms of missed, um, mostly credit account, but other other bill payments starting as early as six years prior to diagnosis in the full sample. Um, this was even more pronounced for those who lived in census tracts, which are very small geographic areas with below average rates of education. And we have a lot of evidence in the economics and sort of financial health literature that um, lower education can be tied to sort of um, worse abilities at financial management. And so this is going to be kind of an especially vulnerable group. And we see either the symptoms are starting earlier or the diagnosis is happening later in disease progression. Um, but I think both, both concerning for different reasons. Um, this group was also more likely to experience symptoms as well as having them for a longer period of time. Um, we also saw that in many cases, financial problems persist after a dementia diagnosis. So we were kind of hoping that if people were having problems and that was like leading you to seek a diagnosis, there would be counseling that, you know, one of the things dementia impacts is the ability to manage money and a family member should be taking over. Um, so we were sort of hoping that you'd see this break where maybe there were problems before diagnosis and then um, somebody comes and helps you sort of get the financial house in order, starts making payments on your behalf. And that did not happen to sort of the extent that we were hoping. And so that sort of points to a need for more financial counseling in the context of dementia diagnosis. So one thing that I thought was super interesting is you all looked at sort of some control conditions, so arthritis, glaucoma, hip fracture, and you didn't see the the relationship with financial problems with those conditions. But interestingly, you also looked at myocardial infarction, um, and you saw that um, ahead of experiencing an MI, there was elevated payment delinquency, um, which is really interesting because you make the point that, you know, MIs can be preceded by periods of intense stress. And so it's just interesting, this idea of, you know, financial stress contributing to people having heart attacks. I, th I just thought that that was um, really interesting um, among the control conditions that you looked at. Yeah, no, and there there's an, some other papers that look at things like how foreclosure risk impacts um, 
rates of heart attack. And that, that's another place where you, where you do see that financial stress leading directly to adverse health outcomes. And so, you know, you're never happy to see bad outcomes happening to people in your data, but we were reassured that mm -hmm. um, this financial stress leading to an MI shows up in our data as it does in, in some of these other papers that have looked at it. That's that's much more of a, you know, an acute stressor. So you saw problems for like a year or two with heart attack as opposed to, you know, the six-year ramp-up period with dementia. But it, it certainly is as we think about like, can we use your credit report to help in diagnosis or to help in developing tools for banks to like not let you put somebody else on all of your accounts or not let you cash out your 401k um, if there's other signs of cognitive impairment we would need to be really careful to you know differentiate between oh are you just at risk of a heart attack or do you actually have cognitive impairment right and to to tease out all of these different financial clues to your physical and cognitive health yeah it is pretty neat that you looked at those different conditions you know it, it brings back memories of like papers that my group had under review where the reviewer always asked us like how does it compare to other conditions and we always respond that's uh, beyond the scope of what we're going to do in this one but you <laughs> actually did it in yours so good job yeah no no it was sort of interesting to see how flat many of the other conditions were and you know, we when we'd be presenting the paper, we'd get questions about, you know, isn't this just because people are sick and they forget to pay their bills because or they can't pay their bills because they're in the hospital or medical care is really expensive and so yep. you don't have money to pay your bills. And um, certainly all, all of those things are true in competing explanations. And so we wanted to be able to really ascertain that dementia is different and kind of has this extended and I think pretty scary um, property where it can affect your ability to manage money possibly before you're even seeing other symptoms and realize that there's a problem that um, needs to be addressed. In some of Joanne's other work, she's shown that um, even people who are showing other signs of cognitive impairment um, tend to, if they were always the financial money manager in the household, they tend to maintain that role. And so I think that's, that's also something that we might want to be aware of and worried about. I'm going to show how little I know about financial stuff. Um, so I think everybody can kind of wrap their heads around like missing a credit card payment. That's pretty straightforward, but like sort of a dip in credit score rating or whatever. Like, what does that mean? And, and, and sort of, could it mean different things, obviously, uh, or, or what? Can you talk a little more about just what that is indicative of? Yes. Yeah, so each credit report bureau, and there's, there's three major bureaus in the United States, has their own um, credit score metric, which is a, a basically um, an assessment of if somebody makes you a loan, how likely are you to kind of pay that off? So are, are you a good credit risk. And the the full methodology is proprietary and they don't want you to to do too much attempt to reverse engineering that. 
Um, but basically it's kind of, you know, your score is going to go down from any number of kind of adverse events. It can, you know, some, sometimes good things also make a score go down, right? Like if you pay off an auto loan or something like that, you're, you now have, less credit extended to you and so that will like can cause a, a short-term dip so so there are some some weird things like that if, if you really go down the rabbit hole of like how to maximize your credit score um but we think most most of um you know for this age group especially where many things are often already paid off um we suspect that that many of the declines are both the missed payments that we see and that we talked about being sort of the most frequent, but also things that are less common in this age group, like having a tax lien placed on your property, um, foreclosure in the subset that is still making home payments and other things sort of along those lines that in our data were sort of too rare to do a good job of studying individually, but um, when you're kind of accumulating all of these pieces of information, um, we can still see those credit score impacts. And we actually saw movement of where, you know, you're not just having the little two-point dip that comes from, you know, no longer you're you own your car outright and you're not making car payments, but this is moving from um, basically being a good credit risk to moving into subprime credit where that's that sort of a, a concerning indicator about financial well-being. And I think it, it, it's typically going to take several adverse events to push you into that territory. So thinking a, a little bit about the implications, and you touched on this a little bit before in one of your comments, but you know, this idea of, of a financial misstep, you know, before a diagnosis, it, it of course could imply that you're, you're picking up on these really sensitive functional things going on before the disease has really started in, in terms of like clinical identification. But it also could be that people are experiencing a delay in getting a diagnosis. I guess, I mean, obviously there's a lot to unpack there and to differentiate the two, but I guess, what are your thoughts and, and, and the thoughts of your, your co-authors that worked on this? Yeah, so one thing that we have been able to do is, you know, it's hard to, to tease out who's, who's not seeing other symptoms, who's not getting a diagnosis for other reasons. But um, many diagnoses for dementia first show up in the context of hospitalization. I think about 40% of our sample is diagnosed during a hospital stay, or not necessarily diagnosed, but um, first first shows symptoms in the claims data. And so we compared those who um, have a hospitalization when their diagnosis shows up, as opposed to those who are only using outpatient care and were more likely to have gone to the doctor um, with concerning symptoms. And we see that the outpatient group has um, both fewer financial symptoms and a shorter sort of look back period. Um, so there's less time from when the financial symptoms start to present to when a diagnosis happens. 
and these the financial problems are both happening more frequently and starting earlier relative to diagnosis for the group that's not being found until hospitalization. And so we interpret that as, as evidence that there, um, these delayed diagnoses are allowing the financial problems to persist for longer and to get worse. And, you know, if the symptoms are actually bad enough that they are being diagnosed, caught in the context of a hospitalization for something else, they probably, you know, should have been caught earlier and the financial signs aren't the only ones present. Um, but we don't know, you know, what's happening in the outpatient sen- setting and why um, this isn't occurring. It is good that you had so many, you know, those, those six years is a pretty good time frame in that regard, though. If I uh, remember correctly, you stratified your analysis by education. Um, so sort of two, three-part question. First, um, so our most listeners might know, like uh, Medicare claims data don't have, you know, education in them. I'm guessing the credit score didn't either. So first, ha- how did you do that? Uh, or what data did you use to do that? And then why did you do it? And and then did it influence your findings? Well, I'll start with the why, which is an, a great reviewer suggestion. Um, one of our peer reviewers is like, oh, this would be, you know, we know that um, education is protective for dementia. We know that education can be informative for um both financial resources and ability to manage that money. It, and, you know, this is a potential confounder that um, I'd really like to see addressed. And, you know, we got that comment and we were like, why didn't we think to do this? This is such a good and important suggestion. Um, it's so, nice when peer review is actually helpful. So that's, that's yeah, great. No, that was, <laughs> we, we had a lot of really helpful peer review comments in this paper, but um, I think that was, that was probably sticks out as like, the biggest, um, I think, only only one that ended up with its total a totally new figure, um, and so in order to do that, since as as you mentioned, neither of the data sets um, do contain that information, we incorporated census data, um, and since we we did have pretty um, small area geographic information that allows you to get down to like 600 to 1,000 people sharing a census tract. People tend to be very similar to their immediate neighbors. Um, So we were able to, at the census tract level, pull in age and education to basically split areas into those where adults 65 and older had fewer years of education than kind of the average American or um, more years of education than average and sort of compare this above versus below median education groups is sort of our, our best proxy of anyone's own level of education. And then in terms of your findings? And then that um, sort of, as as our reviewer, I think, hypothesized, um, those with sort of the lower education or in the lower education areas were um, much more prone to 
this finance. Um, concerning financial presentation. Um, so we saw missed payments starting more like eight years in advance of diagnosis. And um, they were much more common among those um, who developed dementia compared to those who did not in this um, lower education group. So we, we saw um happening, happening for longer and more likely to happen um, to any particular um, dementia patient in the lower education group. So I think definitely um, sort of this combination of risk factors was making the, the financial problems worse. So, so to me, the, the, this idea that you can, you know, find something so small, you know, so far kind of upstream of a diagnosis is kind of surprising, which is why the article is so interesting. Um, but I guess, was there anything from your perspective, someone who's thought through this a little bit and obviously designed the study and everything, was there anything that surprised you? Well, I mean, we, we went into the study thinking that we would be able to see these things, right? But I think, that, you know, the, the first couple times we got our results and it was actually there was kind of like you know, oh, wow, you know, we, we actually did this. And, you know, you're, you're trying to, to turn like New York Times article anecdotes into, you know, big data analysis. And I think you, you never know if that's actually going to pan out. And so I think I'm, I'm still always a little bit surprised that, you know, it's so persistently there and, you know, when, when we, we can look across, you know, we looked at, at additional measures that don't make it to the paper, but you, you see a, a pretty persistent story when you look at some of these things that are just much rarer in credit data. Um, and when, when we do sort of some of these other stratifications, like comparing the people with the potentially delayed diagnosis, you, you just, you know, everything we look at is what you would both expect and fear from this financial presentation. So I think it's, it's always like interesting, but both surprising and upsetting to see kind of how, how pervasive it is. That's such an important thing that you just brought up. Like, you know, we find relationships and then they disappear. But when you have something that's persistent, no matter how you slice it and how you look at it, you know, it, it's such a strong indicator that you're onto something and that it's holding, you know, it's just, uh, it's really cool. Yeah. Well, and, then, and I think whenever I talk to like non-researchers about the paper, they're like, oh yeah, I totally went through that with my grandmother, with my dad, with, I think it's, it's a you know, we've been trying to estimate like what share of the population is ultimately impacted by these financial problems in some way. And I think it's, it's again, where when we think about just like regular conversations with everyday people, like a shockingly large share of, of families um, have to deal with these problems. And I think really points to an area where we need better policy protections and sort of better, like, you know, we've, we probably don't want doctors being like, here's how you manage your finances because 
you know, they they have a lot of other things to deal with. No, we probably don't. don't have time for that in the clinical <laughs> encounter. Um, we don't have, you know, we're not training people to do two jobs at once, but having more of a pathway to kind of additional information and counseling, um, I think is really important as, you know, we, we remain a few years away from other treatments and cures. So you bring up some really important kind of things to think about in, in policy, but what do you see in terms of next steps specifically regarding like research in this space? We are pretty interested in whether we can create useful tools either for, to, to help assist with clinical diagnosis, right? I, I don't think you want to diagnose anyone entirely based on their credit report, but that could help us figure out, like, given limited clinical resources, who should be screened or, you know, can we do something when you're checking in in the waiting room that helps um, go into the diagnostic process? And is there... You know, potential scope for using these more in the financial realm to help put some additional safeguards in place. Because currently, you know, if you say, I want to put this fraudster as a second account holder on all of my bank accounts, the bank has to honor your wishes. And so it's, it's kind of scary, I think, how some of these mistakes could lead to sort of complete depletion of financial assets. So Lauren, you mentioned that um, you, in your analysis, you identified people who were the only beneficiary at that particular address, living at that address. Have you looked or can you look like, is it moderated by whether or not there's a spouse or caregiver? Like if somebody else lives at that address, do you not see this then under the assumption that that other person is managing their finances so you don't see these financial adverse impacts? Where we're starting to look at couples and in, in the credit report data and sort of aren't aren't far enough along to to answer your, you from that standpoint. Um, but I think that's that's something important that these models would need to account for. Um, both Joanne and I and in some other research I've done that Jing Li at University of Washington has led, um, we've used the health and retirement study to look at um, both presence, presence of other family members and sort of going, going back to Joanne's dissertation, you do see um, some family members get involved, but um, it's certainly... Um, not even in the majority of households. And then in Jing's work, we see um, we do see a number of people with full dementia who are still managing their own money, and many of them don't have somebody else in the household available. And so I think the kind of the demographics of who are impacted by dementia, um, you know, it's, it's happening late in life when many people have already lost a spouse and, you know, there isn't necessarily going to be somebody available to take over or the spouse themselves may be also developing cognitive impairment. So it is is sort of a tricky situation. And I think especially when you add on top of 
a lot of what we know about um, elder financial abuse is that perpetrators are frequently family members. And so we're, we're sort of in this tricky area of, you know, you want to recommend, oh, you know, have a trusted family member who's available to step in when that could be totally problematic. It, it seems like you could employ a, a small group of small army of postdocs to work on all some of this. And I, I can imagine all, all the types of like even technological things that could be done potentially to sort of like at least let, let loved ones and caregivers know about things. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, no, I think there's there's huge scope for research and we'd, we'd love to have more people um, teaming up. I'm, I'm always trying to, to tell more students to go into aging and... You know, I wish this were a more crowded area. This way, you have to attach it to an app. You know, so maybe that'll draw them in. Uh, this this is really important work. We really appreciate you coming on, Lauren. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's fun to talk about. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and the data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.